Good morning. Good morning too to everybody who's tuning in and watching online. Uh, if, if our timing and our technology is right, then I can also say g'day to everybody uh, at Bensville. And if you're really lucky, then my lips and the words are, are even synchronised. That'd be great, wouldn't it? So as Kev mentioned, uh, this morning is our sixth and our final message in this series of enlarging our own capacity. And the topic that we're looking at today is our financial health. Now, if you've been attending for the last little while, you'll know that this series has come off the back of another series called um, Disciples Who Make New Disciples Who Make New Disciples. And, and I think that this idea of enlarging our capacity really ought to be understood within, within that discipleship context. Because all of these things that we've spoken about over the last five weeks, our, our physical health, our emotional health, mental health, relational health, our financial health, the, these are all domains of our life that we want to bring under and into our, our apprenticeship to Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit within us, all of these parts of our lives, um, our desire is that they would increasingly come under the Lordship of Jesus. And so, so that not only uh, are we the things that are being holistically renewed, we would also even be agents of that renewal. We would be disciples who are making new disciples. And this is how we enlarge our house. This is how we spread out our home. Now, this final message uh, in the series about financial health um, has the potential for a lot of us to maybe be the most uncomfortable in the series. And the reason is that this idea of enlarging our financial capacity is fundamentally about submitting our financial selves to the Holy Spirit. It's about placing our money and our possessions and, and all of our financial goals and our aspirations under Christ's lordship so that the Spirit might influence our beliefs, might influence our actions. And that's tough. It's certainly been an area that I've struggled with and I know that I'm not alone in that. So what, what are we talking about? What, what, what does it mean to enlarge our capacity in terms of our financial health? Well, it's a monstrous topic. So, uh, so, th so the whole Bible, front to back, all the way through, has lots to say about money and possessions and earning and saving and spending and investing and lending and borrowing and land and flocks and crops and poverty and wealth and giving and generosity. Believe it or not, money and possessions is actually one of the key threads that runs right through the whole biblical story. And I'm going to try to keep this really tight and look at our financial health in just three parts. And so the first is um, that we might look up, that we might reorient our core beliefs about money and possessions. Secondly, that we might take care uh, that our own financial management um, might be considered in response to these reoriented beliefs. And then thirdly, I'm going to talk about this idea that we would do good. 
We'll talk about our agency as financial instruments of spiritual good. So let's start by eyeballing our financial beliefs. Uh, we need to recognise that, that most of what we think, most of what we believe about money is a product of the times and of the culture that we live in. We all have an economic narrative. We have a, a system of beliefs about money and the problem is that that, that belief system has been formed in an individualist, materialist, capitalist, consumerist society. As Dallas Willard might say, our, our financial selves have been formed a world away from God. And now we must be transformed. It is clear throughout scripture that God is very interested in our relationship with money. And the reason is, more, more than anything else perhaps, that, that money and possessions can deceive us into thinking that God is irrelevant. That with enough money comes the power and the security and the freedom to sideline God or maybe even think that we can eliminate our need for God. And so we need the right starting point. We need the right framing narrative. And so to put it simply, we need to look up. So in Colossians 3, Paul is writing, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so while it's true that we might, we might need to function within this earthly economy, our, the, the reference point for our financial beliefs will not be found in the patterns of this world. We need to look up. It, it is only the kingdom of God that represents an ideal and an eternal economic order. And there's, what, there's a lot we can learn about this economic order uh, through, throughout Scripture and specifically even our understanding of who God is and what God is like. His economic order will be consistent with himself. God cannot and does not will anything other than himself. And so a deepening knowledge of our triune God will actually inform our beliefs about money. Now, not only this, it's, a, it's also helpful that we would have some understanding of what a kingdom is. This is not something that we're particularly familiar with. Um, so some understanding of how a kingdom functions can help. Uh, so I'm going to keep this really simple. Let's just think of a kingdom as requiring four things. And, and the first one is reasonably obvious. A kingdom has a king. So the, the king's reign, the king's sovereignty, his rule, is absolute within a kingdom by virtue of ownership. And so this is what Lord means. Lord means owner. So God is Lord, God is owner, and he is owner by creative rights. 
So Isaiah 42, verse 5 says, This is what God the Lord says, The creator of heaven, of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk in it. So God created everything, therefore he owns everything. Psalm 50, verse 10 says for every animal, this is God speaking, for every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. So he made everything, therefore he owns everything and therefore he reigns over everything as both Lord and King. In the books of Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Daniel, Timothy, Revelation, we see that that this God is not just any Lord, he's not just any kings. They declare that he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So every kingdom has a king and every kingdom also has a law. Uh, And that law is actually unique to that kingdom. And the reason it's unique to that kingdom is because the Lord the Lord describes what is right and what is wrong, what's acceptable and unacceptable, uh, what's worthy of celebration and what's worthy of punishment. In other words, the Lord describes what is good and what is evil in the eyes of the king. In a kingdom, the king is the law because whatever the king says goes. Now, since the king is the law, that means that in, that in the kingdom of God, then that law is what? Love. In the kingdom of God, the law is love. Love is the fullness of the law because God is love. Now, this is why Jesus could say, I've not come to abolish the law, but to, but to fulfill it because he is the king. He is the king, and the king is the law. So we have a king, we have a law, and we also have an economy. Now, because everything is owned by the king, it is the king's responsibility um, to meet the economic needs of all of the citizens of the kingdom. So in a kingdom, there's no need for insurance. There's no need for superannuation. There's no individual responsibility for these things because a good king is responsible for the welfare of his citizens. The better the king, the more the king owns, then the better off the citizens of that kingdom Will be. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will meet all your need, all your needs according to the riches of his glory. It's good news for the citizens of the kingdom of God. So we've got a king, we've got a law, we've got an economy, and we've got a territory. So the territory is simply it's simply the geographical extent of the king's ownership. Like it's, it's, the, it's the boundaries of the legal and the economic and the cultural influence of the king. And of course, God's territory encompasses the whole cosmos. It is all crown land. 
Deuteronomy 10.14 says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Now, so, so here's our kingdom. A kingdom has a king, a law, an economy and a territory. Now, in the Genesis narrative, uh, you'll see that humans were created and we were appointed to be God's vice regents. We, we were given dominion. We were given management responsibility for his territory and his resources here on earth. And that we might do this on his behalf and we would do it according to his order of things, according to his law, his economy. But the, the story about the fall in Genesis 3, it tells of a comprehensive rejection of God's kingdom order on all of these levels and that includes the rejection of his economic order. So here's the story. Genesis 3, first seven verses. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in, in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Then she, she makes this next bit up. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So the serpent took something that was good. Remember, so everything that God created was good. The serpent took something that was good and pleasing and he flipped it into an object of desire because that's what the enemy does. And remember that we are desiring things. It's our, it's our desires that orient and capture our hearts and, and draw us towards them. So he took something that was already good and he turned it into bait. The enemy waved in front of them the authority to define their own morality, to know good from evil, in other words, to be like kings and to write their own law. And they took the bait. And so do we. In that one symbolic act, humanity rejected the government of the king. Now, since this legal authority, and that's what it was, don't think it's an apple. Since this legal authority was not something that they possessed, they took it. They took something that was exclusively God's, the king's, so they might own it. For themselves. I hope you see what's going on here. The act of taking what was not theirs introduced a whole new economic structure that did not previously, previously exist. An economic structure based on individual ownership. 
all of a sudden, brand new categories of yours, mine, have and have not came into existence. In that one choice, humanity took both legal and financial economic responsibility for our, for our own well-being. We declared ourselves king, kings and lords. And get this, if you read on, and you'll get this in this week's reading, in rejecting God's law and in rejecting God's economy, God in his abundant grace said, if you're going to be your own kings, then you will need your own territory. And he clothed them and sent them out. And we know how the story goes. And then the rest of the biblical narrative is then about God's gracious redemption of all that was lost when we chose to go our own way. And we're tempted to think that this story of redemption is just a legal story, that it's just a moral story about our legal standing with God, but it is also an economic story. There are more than 2,300 verses in Scripture dealing with money and wealth and possessions. Around 15% of Jesus' teaching was just on this subject. 11 out of 39 parables. He talked more about money and possessions than he spoke about heaven or hell or prayer or faith. And he spoke about money so much because he knew that where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. This is the story of the rich young ruler. It's a a familiar one to you. Uh, Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Interesting that a Jew would ask which, which commandments that he needs to keep. Jesus replied, and get this. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false, false testimony, honour your father and mother and, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, like God, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away, went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here's the rub. Even though he appeared to have obeyed, appeared to have obeyed the law... This young man held on to his title of Lord. Did you pick it? 
When Jesus listed off the laws, he did not mention the first or second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no idols. So when this rich young man was confronted with the, with the need to relinquish his own lordship, he went away sad. The truth is, if we maintain our lordship over money and possessions, we are guilty of idolatry. If I am Lord, then I have displaced Jesus and I've given in to the illusion that somehow my money and my possessions are the source of my power and are the source of my security and are the source of my well-being and my happiness. And the truth is that like once you reach some minimum uh, level of financial security and there is certainly enough to go around, but once I leave... Once I reach this minimum level of financial well-being, there is a reverse correlation between happiness and possessions. We don't get happier with more money. We don't get more generous. We don't get healthier. We don't have better marriages with more money. Economic growth in developed countries has gone hand in hand with a rise in mental and behavioural disorder, with family breakdown, with social exclusion and with diminished trust. So let's get back to our topic. If building capacity is, is not about owning more, then what's it about? Remember that each of these areas of capacity building that we've been speaking about, um, health and, and emotions and finances, they're all domains of life to be brought under the authority of the Holy Spirit so that we might be ready and equipped and resourced for good work. Now that means that any financial capacity building that the Spirit does... It will always be a work of reconciliation with the kingdom order because that's what the Spirit does. Everywhere, all the time, always. The Spirit always moves towards the kingdom order. The Spirit always moves towards God's sovereignty, towards his morality, towards his law, towards his economy, bringing everything under and into his unified heavenly and earthly territory. And interestingly, the biblical um, term for this renewing and reconciling work is justice. So this spirit work of economic justice means moving away from ownership, away from individual accumulation, away from filling buckets of personal reserves which can deceive us into thinking that that's where our source of confidence and happiness is. So get this, this, this is really important. I've, I've highlighted it. If you're going to write something down, write, write this. When we ask that the Holy Spirit might, might bless us financially... It will never be toward reinforcing our own lordship. When we ask that the Holy Spirit 
might bless us financially. It will never be toward reinforcing our own lordship. Instead, the whole Christian journey is one of relinquishing our own kingdoms, putting everything under his lordship. It is about moving from owners to stewards. And the Holy Spirit energises us to that end. And so instead of being stagnant reservoirs of God's resource that we've illegitimately claimed for ourselves, we would be channels of his blessing. We would be pipes, big, fat, beautiful, gushing pipes connected directly to the source, flowing with kingdom resource for the good of many. So that was my first point. Um, So now that we've got a correct starting point, okay, so pipes, not buckets, stewards, not owners, let's look at what it actually means to to steward or to take care of God's resource. And firstly, well, what what, what is a steward? Um, A steward is someone that the owner entrusts with the, with the management of the owner's resources. Stewards take care of the owner's stuff. Um, the owner doesn't lend to the steward. The, the owner doesn't even, doesn't even give to the steward. He entrusts. The owner may provide for, he may bless the steward, but he does not relinquish ownership. That relationship stays clear Stewards know that from him and through him and for him are all things. And so the question for the steward is always, how would the owner have me manage his stuff? Well, it means that we take care. We take care minimally to plan and to spend and to borrow and to save in a manner that accords with the master's heart. Um, So I'm not giving financial advice here. There is no product disclosure statement and I can't talk fast enough to give give the whole blurb. Um, But the starting point is planning. So good stewardship requires intentionality. The first thing we need is a budget. We need to forecast. We need to plan for what's coming in and for what's going out. Did you know that 86% of Australians do not know what their monthly expenses are? Randy Alcorn, who, who writes a lot on this topic, he says that the purpose of a budget is to tell money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went. Um, But now that if if a budget is set up and then we ignore it, then that's just an exercise in wishful thinking. Uh, We need to track our budget. We need to pay attention every month and we make adjustments. Uh, Spending. This is what most of of your budget is dedicated to, right? It's allocated allocated to expenses, to to money that's going out. Now, Now, here's the trick in managing expenses. You ready for this? This is gold. Spend less than you earn. Um, Now, I don't want to trivialise the difficulty of that. Um, And I reckon that we've all had seasons where we have trusted in the Lord to make ends meet. 
and we can probably give testimony to those being times um, of, of genuine growth in our faith. But the stewardship principle remains. Spend less than you earn. Um, now, giving, of course, giving is also part of our, of our outgoings. And I'm going I'm to talk about that in a, more in a moment. But suffice to say that our giving is to be planned. It's to be intentional. It's to be budgeted. It should sit right up at the very top of our budget. And even if our giving is going to be opportunistic, we actually have to plan to be opportunistic. Borrowing. Now, it's, it's difficult to participate in our society without incurring debt, and the Bible does not forbid it, but it does give, um, does give warnings and advice about it. Romans 13 verse 7 says, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding. We need to pay off our debts. Now, the problem with debt is that it does perpetuate that owner economy and the Bible goes so far as to call it slavery. Proverbs 22 verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower borrower is slave to the lender. Uh, In Australia, like most developed economies, debt has grown faster than wages, and we've probably felt that. Uh, And even if you do earn a lot, the statistics will tell us that the higher your income, the more likely you are to be over-indebted. For for Aussie adults, apart from our mortgage, the average individual debt is 50 grand. Out of control debt, it, it usually signals deeper issues. Could be issues of, of greed, issues of impulsiveness or a, a lack of attentiveness or self-control. Now, as a note, I know that there are going to be people here, there will be people who are listening in, who, who today are in financial distress. And I want to be sensitive to that. That is not God's plan for your life. And you will know that money problems have a nasty habit of becoming marriage problems, of becoming health problems and and social problems. Coast Community Care operates a cap debt centre and that is there to provide counselling for people who are experiencing financial distress. And so if you are in over your head, then we have... Uh, resources and we have contacts that that can help you navigate out of that. So please make contact with the church office. Uh, And saving. The Bible encourages saving and investing. Ecclesiastes 11.2 says, Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. So even some really good diversification advice. But remember, though, that we're, we're looking through the lens of stewardship and not through the, the lens of ownership. Uh, you'll recall Joseph's story in, in Genesis 41. Remember, Joseph, in, uh, he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. Uh, there were going to be 
uh, se- seven years of abundance and then that was going to be followed up by seven years of, of famine. And so Joseph organised that during the abundant years that the crops and grains would be stored up. Uh, enough for all of Egypt and even for the surrounding nations. And that stewardship elevated him to a position of great influence across all of Egypt. So faithful stewards will store up their master's resources specifically to keep the pipe flowing, even in, and maybe even, maybe especially in, times of difficulty. But meanwhile... The, the owner mentality, the bucket mentality of storing up um, does not get Jesus' tick of approval. So listen to this. This is Jesus, Jesus speaking. So he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but he's not rich toward God. So as stewards, we take care of the master's resources. We, we plan, we spend, we borrow and we save and we do that in a way that is consistent with the owner's wishes and that also means that we do good. We put kingdom resources to work to achieve kingdom outcomes. Now, this not only includes our our tithing and our giving, and I'll get to that soon, um, but rather it includes all of our spending. It includes all of our investing. All of these things can be mechanisms of our flourishing and our renewing. So, guys, if you thought that that was my cue, it's not quite there yet. I'll give you a wink. But I love that you're right on it. So tithing, the tithe simply means, you've got to put up with me for longer. The tithe simply means a tenth. So it's the Old Testament practice of of giving our first fruits. Giving the first 10% of our revenues back to God and that giving was through the, through the synagogue um, or through the temple. Now, the important thing to understand here is that Jesus did not dismantle and he did not denigrate the tithe, the practice of tithing. And the reason is that the coming of Jesus and the gospel of grace did not change the fact that God owns everything. Strictly speaking, tithing's not giving. How can you give something to somebody who already owns the thing that you're giving? Tithing is a practice. It's a demonstration that reminds our hearts that everything belongs to God. Tithing has nothing to do with law. It has nothing to do with legalism. It has everything to do with discipleship. It's a physical participation in his 
kingdom economy and it's a protest against false kingdoms and broken economies of this world. And why is it 10%? Probably because that's really easy to work out. Um, 10% actually seems to be the starting point. Randy Alcorn, again, he says that tithing is the training wheels on the practice of giving or on the bicycle of giving. So even though this is the starting point, I've got to tell you that I've struggled with this from time to time and I'm not alone. It turns out that across all denominations, 81% of Australian churchgoers give less than 10%. In the US, somebody who is making 20 grand a year is eight times more likely to tithe than somebody earning 75,000. If all Christians tithed, there would be an additional, get this, 165 billion US dollars put to kingdom use every year. From tithing we move to giving, and giving is a separate thing. If tithing is God-focused, then giving is others-focused. Well, which others? God and all of his prophets uh, have a lot to say about the poor and about the widow and the orphan and the oppressed and the lost and the sick and the marginalised and the afflicted and the downtrodden and the victims of injustice. And indeed, it was to these that Jesus came to proclaim the good news because none of these afflictions are a product or are a function of the kingdom order. They're all a product of the fall and of, the, and of a rejection of God's law and of the kingdom economy. And thus, all of them are to be reconciled. And so as citizens of the kingdom of God, it is our joy and it's our responsibility to put kingdom resource to work in those ministries who spread the good news. Ministries like Rima like SRE and scripture teaching on the Central Coast, ministries like Scripture Union and like MAF and like Pioneers. It's also up to us to put resources in the hands of ministries that are committed to righting wrongs in Jesus' name. Organisations that deal with justice issues like climate change, like modern day slavery, like gender violence and gender inequality like racial prejudice and exploitation and religious persecution. And so we give to ministries like International Justice Mission and Common Grace and Open Doors. And it's our responsibility to resource organisations who minister to the poor. As Christians, we cannot abide poverty. We're not to condone it. We're not to contribute to it. We are to diligently give and to work to eliminate it. It is injustice and it, it diminishes the God image in those who are afflicted by it. So we give to organisations like Compassion and Christians Against Poverty and to World Vision and to Tear. And, and there are, of course, many more organisations worthy of our generous support. And indeed, it is generosity that primes the pump. We don't wait until we think we have surplus or reserves before we give. We give now because we know that we are already blessed 
and we are connected to the source. So there's a lot of good that we can do with our giving, but what's sometimes overlooked is the good that we can do or at least the harm that we can avoid by stewarding our whole wallet, our spending and our investing. Do we really want our toilet paper to be sourced from virgin rainforest? Do we really want our seafood to come from operators that obliterate fish stocks? Do we really want our clothes, our tea, our coffee, our tyres, our electronics, our construction materials or our seafood to be products of slave labour? Because it often is. As kingdom stewards, it is not okay to ignore the impact of our everyday purchases. We are to take care and as far as possible to do good with every dollar. Baptist World AIDS Ethical Fashion Guide, Ethical Electronics Guide, um, Ethical and Slave Free Certifications can help us to steward our spending. And the same is true with our investing. Your superannuation is currently doing something in the planet. Those funds, they could be the biggest bucket of money that you are responsible for stewarding. That money is out there now and it's doing something. What if, as Christians we were to mobilise our superannuation toward those investments that at least did minimal harm but at best contributed to human flourishing. 50% of Australians still align themselves with a church. Uh, 12% attend church regularly. If 12% of Australian superannuation funds were directed to doing no harm or to doing good... That would be $324 billion. Just Australia. What if our super did good? If you want to learn more about that, then Christian super is a great place to start. Uh, the same is true for our stocks, for our investment funds. Uh, there is no shortage of ethically screened investments and we are on the verge and this is exciting we're on the verge of seeing funds that are designed to specifically do good for the planet funds that are designed to support the sustainable development goals the SDGs we should be at the front of the queue to invest in these funds so all of a sudden money which could be our destruction has actually become completely awesome and as believers, we, we should want to supercharge our financial capacity, not as owners, but as stewards, not as buckets, but as pipes. We need more and bigger pipes. The goal is not prosperity. The goal is capacity. Capacity to be, to be agents, to be channels of God's grace so that justice might flow like a river. And so we look up. We shift our, our financial paradigm from, from individual owner to kingdom steward. And then as stewards, we take care. We're, we're intentional and we're careful about how we earn and how we spend and how we save and how we borrow God's money. And we do good. We bear witness to his kingdom and his economy by how we put his money to work in overcoming injustices and by sharing the good news. And I don't know about you, but I want to participate 
in his economy. And I have to remind myself of that sometimes. I want to be shaped now by the eternal truth that everything comes from him, exists by his power and is intended for his glory. And that I, that, that we, we have been entrusted as kingdom stewards. And to that end, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would enlarge our own capacity for every good work, our physical capacity our emotional, our mental health, our relational capacity and our financial capacity. And then perhaps the master says, you've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So let me pray. Father God, by the power of your spirit, In the name of your son, would you redeem our financial beliefs and practices? For the good of our neighbours and indeed all of creation, 